please remain standing and pray with me. Almighty God, we do pray this morning on these, uh, this dark and dreary, rainy day, Lord, that we would indeed, even in the midst of this uh, kind of weather, we would glimpse your glory, that you would reveal yourself to us today. Lord, we, we know that you reveal yourself in your word, but we, Lord, we would ask also that you would stir up our hearts so that in our hearts we might know that you live among us and our work among us and that you're applying the scriptures to our lives. Lord, grant me, the preacher of your word, the ability to speak clearly and confidently uh, with conviction and under the unction of the Holy Spirit. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. Well, thanks to the Lutherans, about 30 years ago, today is Transfiguration Sunday. Yesterday are the ones that put uh, this day in our lectionary as the last Sunday after the Epiphany. So we always hear the story of the Transfiguration every Sunday that's the last Sunday after the season of Epiphany. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. But I want you to know that uh, there is, there's great theological depth in this passage. There's things to be unfolded and unwrapped. There are great gifts to us here. But you need to know that there is, it's not just theology. It, it applies to your life. It applies to my life. And I, so I want, to, I want to show you today, I want to unwrap those riches that are here in this text. And then I want to show you how I think the Lord would have this apply in our lives. And just to uh, not bury the lead, so to speak, is this is that uh, because of Christ's suffering and glory, his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration going down to suffering, and then his glory again at the resurrection, and because we are in Christ by baptism and faith in him, that same pattern is going to show up in your life, and that's actually good news. And so let's talk about that this morning. So this season, which has emphasized the glory of Jesus, Christ's glory revealed to the world this epiphany season, it's appropriate that we hear this transfiguration account at the end of this season. And in today's passage, the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ is front and center. At the transfiguration, uh, Luke says that Peter, James, and John became fully awake when they became fully awake on the mountain because they were heavy with sleep. So don't be heavy with sleep. Come fully awake. When they became fully awake on the mountain, they saw his glory. Luke 9, 32, they saw his glory. You know, this is really a strange passage. Uh, in, in some ways, this is the Jesus that we always wanted, all bright and shiny. You know, Jesus, uh, Jesus with special effects, CGI Jesus transforming right before your eyes. But the amazing thing here is that when Jesus is transfigured so that his glory is revealed in a moment that looks a lot like triumph, it actually has a direct connection. The moment that looks like triumph on the Mount of Transfiguration has a direct connection to his glory revealed on the cross. These things are connected. Because you and I cannot separate Christ's glory from Christ's suffering. In fact, if you wanted to write something down, you might want to write that down. We cannot separate Christ's glory from Christ's suffering. The intentional literary arrangement of Luke's gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, unites Christ's suffering with his glory. He's doing this on purpose. Right at the beginning of this passage we heard this morning, the scripture says, now about eight days after these sayings, about eight days after these sayings. What sayings is he talking about? 
Well, if you have your Bible or your phone there with your Bible on it, you can go to uh, Luke chapter 9 and look at verse 21, Luke 9 verse 21. And Jesus said, and he, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell, no, to tell this to no one. He has just been identified and confessed as the Messiah. Saying, the Son of Man, listen, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So think of that as one bookend. And then we have the transfiguration account. And on the other side of that, Look down at verses 43 and 44, Luke 9, 43 and 44. And all were astonished at the majesty of God, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these, listen, let these words sink into your ears. I like that. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. So the other bookend, predicting his suffering. Suffering is predicted. Glory is revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration, and suffering is predicted again. So Jesus foretells his death before and after the Transfiguration. But it is at the Transfiguration that we are given a glimpse of the meaning of his death. The Transfiguration gives us a glimpse of the meaning of Christ's death on the cross. So in the Transfiguration event, we see... The glory of Jesus that he will be that he will have that's being revealed right here. The glory of Jesus revealed at the end of the age will be like the glory we have seen on the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus' work is accomplished at the end of the age, consummation of all things, he will be revealed in that glory. And then Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. How do we know it was Moses and Elijah? Because obviously you wear name tags in heaven. You thought it was just going to church. No, you never get away from the name tags. Seriously, though, why these two men? Why? Well, Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. Luke is including them specifically to remind us to think. I mean, they certainly were there, but they are the embodiment of the Torah and the prophets. Moses, the Torah. Elijah, the prophets. In essence, all of God's revelation is standing there personified by Moses and Elijah. All that, has been, all that has gone before thus is leading up to, Moses and Elijah are there, they represent the law and the prophets, showing that all of that was leading up to and pointing towards Jesus Christ. Where do we hear the law and the prophets pop up again in Luke? Well, on the day of resurrection, following his suffering on the cross, on the day of resurrection, three days later, when Jesus joins those two downhearted disciples on the road to Emmaus, listen, listen what it says. This is Luke 24, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You know, when I was, uh, when I was going through seminary, um, it was, a, it was a liberal Protestant seminary. I, I, I escaped as a Christian. I'm still a Christian. But um, I remember my Old Testament professors just wagging their fingers at us, saying, you cannot read Jesus into the Old Testament. Why would you even do that? Well, that's why. Because Jesus reads Jesus into the Old Testament. So that's my basis for that. Now, why is this significant? Well, because what is about to unfold, all the law and the prophets are pointing to it, 
as Jesus leaves the mountain and he begins to walk on his journey to Jerusalem, all of that has been God's plan since Moses, since before Moses, since the foundation of the world. Nothing is about to go out of control or off kilter. The wheels aren't coming off. This has been God's plan from the beginning, and that's what the Old Testament tells us. You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all recount the event of the transfiguration, but Luke alone is the only one who tells us what Moses and Elijah were speaking with Jesus about, the content of the conversation. It says here in Luke 9, verse 30, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. It says that they spoke of his departure that he was to accomplish in Jerusalem. Except the Greek word here is not departure. It's, well, in one, yes, it is in, in one sense, but the literal Greek word here is exodus, exodus. And Luke is the only one who uses that word in the context of the transfiguration. Jesus is about to accomplish his exodus event in Jerusalem. The Exodus is probably the central story of the Old Testament. If you go back even to the Psalms, in multiple places, the Exodus is recalled in the Psalms that Israel would sing. God's mighty deliverance act in the Old Testament. And remember that at the Exodus, you should remember this. I mean, you saw the movie and we saw the cartoon and the animated feature. Some of you even read it in the Bible. But... Uh, Remember that at the Exodus, Moses led God's people out of slavery and out of bondage. He leads God's people out of slavery and bondage into abundance and freedom in the promised land. But the Exodus happens because of an event that occurs immediately prior to it. It can't be separated from it. The Exodus happened because of Passover. In Exodus chapter 12, as a final plague of judgment... God strikes down the firstborn of Egypt. So when Israel thinks about the Exodus, they're thinking about Passover as well. So he tells his people to kill the Passover, what did this, he say? Kill that Passover lamb, take some of its blood, and smear it on the lintel and the doorposts of the houses in which you dwell. And that is so that the destroying angel who comes bringing judgment on Egypt will see the blood of the lamb and pass over pass that house by. They will be spared the judgment that was to come upon Egypt. Brothers and sisters, by saying this is his departure, his exodus, Jesus is our Passover lamb. He is our Passover lamb. On the cross, Jesus is offered up to spare us from the judgment of God so that we will be passed over by looking to him. And through his death, not only are we spared from God's judgment, his death is the liberation. God liberates all of humanity from slavery to sin. He gives us a way out of Egypt. And from the power of death, the things that have enslaved and bound us, Jesus destroys on the cross if we will only avail ourselves of the gift freely offered in Jesus Christ. It is the exodus. 
The transfiguration is the hinge point of Jesus' ministry. Up until this point, Jesus has been on an itinerant ministry of proclaiming the kingdom of God and demonstrating the reality of the kingdom of God by breaking in through his mighty acts. His healings and miracles are a display of the kingdom of God he embodies. But beginning at the transfiguration, Jesus changes directions almost literally. He is now heading towards Jerusalem in a journey that ends at Calvary. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. Determination. Now here's the thing. The transfiguration is the glory of God revealed before the cross in Christ. Christ's glory is revealed before his suffering on the cross. Jesus descends the mount only to go to Jerusalem for the passion. Christ's glory and his eternal sonship are therefore inseparable from his role as suffering servant. We cannot separate Christ's glory from his suffering. You cannot know Jesus in his glory apart from Jesus in his suffering. This is a hard word for us in the Christian, once, once upon a time, Christian West. This is why uh, we, we don't like that part. In fact, if you really want to draw a crowd, you might want to avoid the suffering bits and talk about your best life now. Thank you very much. I'd like to have my best life now. My best life is not now. I'm waiting for my best life. I'm waiting for the life after life. You cannot know Jesus in his glory apart from him in his suffering. Glory and suffering are united in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, why is that? Why are suffering and glory together? Why is it connected? It sounds kind of perverse. I mean, we're not Buddhists. You know, the scriptures do not teach us that life is suffering. That's what Buddhists believe, but we don't believe that. So why is glory so connected to suffering? Well, because the glorious God, this is, this is critical, the glorious God who comes to us in Jesus Christ, this God is love. This God is love. Self-giving love is at the very heart of the life of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, always giving themselves away to one another in the Trinitarian community. And when self-giving, listen, when self-giving love encounters a fallen, sinful world, the inescapable result is suffering. When self-giving love encounters fallen, sinful world, the, the connection becomes suffering. And we actually hear this in, in 1 John. If you go to the little letter of 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, 1 John 4, 8 through 10, listen to this connection between love and Christ's suffering. Anyone who does not know uh, excuse me, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is, there you go, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Now here it is. In this is love. In this, okay, this is it. he's about to say, this point I'm about to make, this is love. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What is propitiation? 
Well, it's a very technical term, but you could say it like this. He is the atoning sacrifice, the offering that dies for our sin. Love and suffering come together because when self-giving love encounters fallen world, the inescapable result is suffering. Oswald Chambers says that the uh, transfiguration was the great divide in the life of our Lord. He stood there in the perfect spotless holiness of his manhood. Then he turned his back on the glory and came down from the mount to be identified, identified with sin. Now think of a, here's, here's how I think about this. This is where I get the, this kind of comes together for me. Think of a parent and a child. You know, that love poured out on shouting. You know, Christ Church tends to go through seasons where it just rains babies around here. It's raining babies. It's happening this week. We love that. This is our church growth model. Keep going at it, please. Make that happen. I don't know what it makes it happen, but you, you do that. But the love of a child, a love of a parent poured on, out on that child as an infant is a source of limitless joy for that parent or grandparents. Grandparents, have, oh, it's so great. But if that child grows up to rebel against and reject that parent, and take the path of self-destruction, all of that parent's love that was so full of joy is now filled with suffering. Suffering. It's unavoidable. Self-giving love, when it encounters fallenness, results in suffering. Or if that child is struck down tragically by disease or accidents because of the sheer fallenness of that world, your parent's love becomes suffering. You cannot love without making yourself vulnerable to suffering. And so, C.S. Lewis, our obligatory quote from St. Clive, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it up carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The, alternate, the alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven you can be perfectly safe from all dangers and perturbations of love is hell. Now here is the connection for us. This is the application to your life and to my life. If we are united to Jesus Christ, and we are, by the new birth and sealed with the Holy Spirit, then the transfiguration, if we are united to Christ then the transfiguration in some way becomes a preview of our lives in Christ. We cannot experience the glory we were created for in Christ unless we embrace his cross and welcome his suffering into our lives. I need to repeat that. We cannot, you cannot experience the glory you were created for in Christ unless you are willing to embrace his cross and welcome his suffering into your life. To love Jesus and to love the world he came to save means that we will be wounded by love. 
you and I will be wounded by love. But that's okay. Because it's in that wounding that we know our deepest union. In this world, prior to his coming again, before the kingdom comes in, as we live in the time between the times, we find our greatest intimacy with Christ when we accept the sufferings that are brought into our lives as a sharing in the sufferings of Christ. That's what Paul says. So if Paul says it, it must be true. I mean, obviously... Paul in Romans chapter 8 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. In other words, all that is Christ's is ours. But here's how he ends that statement. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided on the condition thereof. We suffer with him. We suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. God means for you and I to experience glory. We all with unveiled faces looking at Jesus are being transformed from one degree of glory to another, 2 Corinthians 3.18. God's desire for you is not just that you have your best life now. is that you experience his own glory in your life. But the only way you can do that, the only provision for that, in fact, it says, provided we suffer with him. You know, we often find that our greatest times of intimacy with God and his blessing and affirmation precede times of great testing. We also are going to be led, since we're united with Christ, through suffering, and we will also be glorified with him as well. So here's what I want you to think about right now. Maybe, you, maybe, maybe right this minute, uh, your life is hunky-dory. All your doors are hunky. They're just, you're having a great time. It's good. It's good for you right this minute. That's wonderful, and we rejoice with you. The Bible says rejoice with those who rejoice. But brothers and sisters, love makes us vulnerable. And at some point, suffering will enter your life. We have people right now in our church that are going through great suffering. We have a dear, uh, dear brother and sister that are, uh, that are brothers in his last hours, last days, as he prepares to go home and be with the Lord. It's a sweet time, but there are so many tears, so many tears. Tears of goodbye. I mean, tears just because death is horrible. Tears of impending loneliness. Because if you're willing to love somebody and you lose them to death, you're wounded by love. But in that moment, you can be even more deeply united to Christ so that his glory can be revealed in you as well. We have people who deal with um, long-term sickness and suffering in this church, and that's, use that. That's God's, he's inviting you into experiencing Union with Christ in a way that leads to glory. And this, this pattern of, of suffering and glory, it's not just like we suffer and then we die and then we go to heaven and then we, the Lord returns, we're raised from the dead, and then we have glory. You're going to see this pattern over and over in your life. That's like a sine wave. There'll be times of suffering and glory, suffering and glory, until we come to that final moment. If we suffer with him, we will also be glorified in him. Lutheran pastor Ryan Stout says this. He says, We are presented at the two ends of Lent 
with two very different images of Christ victorious. Here atop the mountain at the transfiguration, we see Jesus lit up like the Vegas Strip. Bright and shiny and everything you could want our God to be. At the other end of Lent, at Good Friday, we see his far more shocking glory, enthroned on a cross, crowned with thorns, robed in blood, and raised up high for all the world to see. And yes, we will see the light of Christ shining again, transfigured again, but it awaits now only, it awaits us now only on the other side of the tomb. It is the cross and not the crown which remains the most solemn and beloved symbol of our faith because only in the cross do we see, only in the cross do we see how deeply runs the love of God. How much does Jesus love you? All the way to hell and back. <laughs> what a good God. What a good, good God. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us your glory on the mount. Thank you for accepting the suffering that love brings on the cross. Thank you for the anticipation of your resurrection victory. And Lord, thank you that in our lives, as we walk closely with you, we will reflect those same things to your glory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.